0: Welcome to The Public Morality. One of the expectations that we seemingly embrace, especially in presidential politics, is the hope that whoever is elected will somehow bring the nation together. The genuine desire to have the nation in some respects unified seems to forego any responsibility on the citizen. In other words, civic virtue. A concept rooted in the formation of the American Republic, Civic virtue seems all but lost in the 21st century. What is it? Why is it important? And can the nation survive without it? Joining me to address these questions and others is Professor Kevin Marinelli. Professor Marinelli is Executive Director of the Program for Public Discourse at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Professor Kevin Marinelli, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you. Great to be here. Mm -hmm. Well, let's begin by having you define what is civic virtue for you?
1: Well, I think it's important first to define virtue in general. Okay. And I I draw on Aristotle's concept of virtue because I think it's a useful one. And he was one of the first philosophers to theorize really in depth about virtue ethics. And for Aristotle recognizing and fulfilling your purpose is synonymous with virtue and it's necessary to living a good life a happy life so in that way virtue has intrinsic value every everything and everyone has an intrinsic purpose and virtue then is excellence with regard to that purpose so that of course begs the question what is uh the purpose of human beings and for aristotle human beings are defined by their capacity for reason. So then for Aristotle to be virtuous is to engage in sound reasoning. Now, interestingly, this connects us to the concept of civic virtue, because Aristotle doesn't end at reason. He says, Reason is what allows us to do politics. And politics is the highest art of all for Aristotle because it's in politics that we achieve the greater good for the entire community. But interestingly, it doesn't just begin with reason either. Aristotle, in fact, says that it's speech that allows us to engage in reason. And many philosophers following Aristotle will actually... Um, dismiss speech and language as something derivative or even opposing uh, reason. But for Aristotle, speech is is central to it. So we have this beautiful progression of thought here. Speech allows for the capacity for reason. Reason allows for politics, and politics allows for the common good. So to return to your initial question, what is civic virtue for me? it's more than just a commitment to the common good for me it's a commitment to cultivating the means by which we can achieve the common good central to which is speech so for me uh civic virtue is about attending to speech practices listening to others engaging in thoughtful speech considering alternative perspectives Uh, And thinking about the process, the democratic process itself, in and of itself, rather than using democracy merely as a means to an end. And that's what we do at the Program for Public Discourse, is specifically try to cultivate those means of of democratic action through public discourse.
0: And and because America, specifically in a democratic republic, can any kind of democratic form of government survive without some appreciation for civic virtue?
1: I think it would be a big challenge, and, and it would be devoid of, of what makes democracy great if you don't have a concept of civic virtue.
0: Part of the problem, uh, Professor Marinelli, is that when was the last time, outside of academia and outside of you appearing on the public rally, was the, <laughs> the importance of civic virtue discussed in our public discourse? Well, I think civic virtue
1: is a reoccurring theme in politics, even if politicians don't use that term, perhaps because they worry it might appear heavy handed You know, the term civic virtue or virtue in general smacks of religious doctrine, even though in reality it has a much broader definition, which we just discussed. In fact, from what I understand, the Program for Public Discourse was initially termed or titled the Program for Civic Virtue, but the name was later switched. And I, I wasn't part of that conversation, but I guess it would have something to do with that concern of that that heavy handedness. But in any case, when when John F. Kennedy, for example, implores citizens, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. He's, he's evoking a sense of civic virtue. So I, I do think it's a, it's a reoccurring theme in politics, whether or not we use that explicit term. And I'm, I'm really not particularly invested in whether people use the term or not. What is particularly interesting here is that, you know, this of course becomes a famous line in a famous speech. So it was a successful rhetorical appeal, which tells me that there is this imminent sense of civic virtue in citizens, that the, uh, whether or not they realize it. So it's really just a question of how well we do targeting and cultivating that sense of c- civic virtue that I always think is present to some extent.
0: And the, the, these are my words, but it seems to some degree that we're, ha- we're handcuffed by what I would define as a zero-sum game in, in that our politics, such that it is, that it's not enough for me to win. You, Professor Marinelli, must also, as the opposition, must also lose. And if and if that's how I'm thinking, doesn't that put me at odds of some any kind of notion of civic virtue that you just articulated?
1: Yeah, politics can't be a zero sum game. Uh, it has to include compromise. And I think with a real sense of civic virtue, you're, you're willing to compromise. There's, this, there's a concept of democracy called agonistic democracy that acknowledges the competitive spirit of politics while also emphasizing the central importance of the democratic process itself. So if the system collapses in the process of achieving your ends, then you've actually failed. And by collapsing the system, I don't just mean a formal collapse such as a political coup, but also people's loss of trust in the system itself. People have to believe that even if the election doesn't go their way, the system will still work in their general interest. Without that fundamental trust, democracy cannot function. So it really comes back to trust. Virtue is uh, another word for, for trustworthiness.
0: You know, we often hear, especially during presidential elections, a desire for a candidate, whoever wins, the people want someone who will unite the nation. And I take that as, as a, an authentic appeal, but at the same time, I guess I wonder, doesn't that minimize, let's say, my responsibility as an individual and the importance that I place uh, on civic virtue as you defined it earlier through the Aristotle uh, perspective? Uh, How how so? Well, let's just take, since uh, President-elect Biden won, let's just take President-elect Biden. I support President-elect Biden because I believe he can bring the nation together. Doesn't that sort of minimize, am I not minimizing my own responsibility in that civic virtue piece to bring the nation together by just putting it on one individual?
1: Yes, I see what you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah, we, we we can't defer it. To others, You know, in many ways, the political process and particularly party politics is a is a reductive practice. You know, we reduce very complex issues to political parties and then we reduce those parties to political leaders. And it's very reductive. And, and you're absolutely right. When we reduce these complexities to these symbols, then we're not engaging in that in that process of virtue, the, the process itself. That, that cultivates the virtue, the, 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 the uh, investing ourselves in these difficult challenges. So you're absolutely right. It, it, it shouldn't let us off the hook. We, we have to continue to, to struggle with these perennial challenges in our daily lives.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Professor Kevin Marinelli. Professor Marinelli is the Executive Director of the Program for Public Discourse at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And we are discussing the topic of civic virtue. Professor Marinelli, when, when you consider what the founders had in mind and, and, and where we are today, what comes to your mind are, are are we close to what they had in mind are we miles apart it doesn't matter tell me what what comes to your mind
1: that's a great question it's a very difficult question because in many ways we we live in a vastly different world from our founding fathers it's it's easy to say that in many respects we we fall short of their ideals in other respects we've certainly surpassed them regarding their own, you know, limitations and shortcomings. So it's it's just it's a complex question because it's really a, a mixed bag. I don't look at history as a as a linear trajectory. I, I don't know how idealist our, our founding fathers were. They certainly created mechanisms, some of which we utilize today that you know that have really stood the test of time, uh, but you know, many of them have also been adapted to fit our, our changing landscape as well.
0: Well, on that last note, you often hear one side of the political aisle you know, always hearkening back to what the founders intended, but you just articulated it's quite possible that the world that we live today is not the world that the founders could comprehend. Maybe with the exception of Alexander Hamilton and the economic system, that aside. So this whole notion of civic virtues, as I'm hearing you articulate it, can be and maybe somewhat argue should be somewhat fluid in our public discourse.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think that's one of the most important legacies of the founding fathers is that they recognized that the world changes and they wanted to create a system that could adjust to those changes and it's funny you brought up Alexander Hamilton, and of course, you know we, we have the, you know, the, the the Federal Reserve, and still our our economic system doesn't resemble anything that that even he could have predicted, you know. But they but they did create these mechanisms that could adapt and change with the times.
0: It, you know, it's commonly held that civic virtue includes the responsibility of the citizen to place his or her interests, uh, uh, Above society, you mentioned the famous JFK inaugural snippet, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. But that belief was echoed originally before political parties. When when Aristotle talked about civic virtue, he, he didn't have political parties in mind. Or when Montesquieu talked about it, he didn't have political parties in mind. So... Is that view of placing the country, placing the needs of the country above our own in the world of parties possible today?
1: You know that's a great question. That's certainly an advantage of political philosophers or philosophy in general, or academia in general, that these institutions exist outside the system of partisan politics. And it's easy to be to get lofty and uh idealize you know what what things like virtue look like but when you get into the mud when you begin to wrestle through political issues that are that are affecting our communities in the here and now it, it gets messier and i think it's important to be able to navigate between those two poles between the you know the the philosophical on one hand and the political on the other but i also think it's it's important to remember that those two things don't have to oppose one another. Often we think of those things as opposition. You know, we have the, our idealized world on one hand, but then we have the practical world, the real world on the other. But if we take this notion of civic virtue seriously, this notion that it's all about, you know, cultivating uh, the means by which we can engage our politics more ethically, the more we do that, the more we close the gap between the process and the ends, the more, I would argue, they, they come together so there isn't that uh, chasm between them.
0: And You sort of touched on this earlier, uh, but we, we, we live in a world now where I go home and I turn on my cable news channel of choice. Or my blog of choice to reinforce what I already believe. I never factor in the possibility uh, that there might be a gap in my thinking. While I hold the worst assumptions for you, since you happen to to view exactly the opposite of what I believe, I have no uh, hope that you can have any truth in what you say. So, if we're living, if I'm living in that world are we not just slowly building a chasm that cannot be crossed if this notion of civic virtue or whatever we want to call it is to be achieved in a democratic republic?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. When we look at the ways in which mass media are utilized today, this kind of uses and gratifications means by which we turn to the news only to echo our own beliefs and values we continue to put ourselves in these echo chambers. It's it's an enemy to civic virtue. Um, it, but I think there is a, a way out. I am optimistic. I think as demoralizing as it is when we turn on the cable news, for example, I'm much more inspired when I begin a conversation with someone in person including people with whom i i really disagree because those interpersonal conversations and debates too they can be argumentative but i think at the the interpersonal level they become much more productive and so i i would caution people not to not to be too dissuaded uh, by what they see in the mass media because that, that, I don't think that's a genuine reflection of the, of the polis. You know, people uh, make a lot of money on, on dividing the nation. But when you get into the, the you know, real conversations on the ground level, you find that the, uh, our beliefs and values are much more nuanced and much more generous than, than any of those cable news shows would have us believe.
0: To be fair, uh, we we mentioned Alexander Hamilton earlier. I mean, there there were certainly Hamiltonian newspapers, newspapers that sided with the belief of Alexander Hamilton, and there were also Jeffersonian newspapers. So this so this notion of having our beliefs reaffirmed is not a new one in American democracy. Is that fair?
1: That's absolutely right. You know, I'm not I'm not <laughs> a historian, but w- historians love to point out. these, these facts that when you, you know, whatever we try to say about our contemporary landscape, oh, we've never been so divided. We've never seen this or that before. Historians will always come back and say, actually, we have seen this before. This isn't, uh, this isn't really new.
0: And and then I I also wonder, are we condensing in the 21st century from your perspective, sir, uh, are we condensing political allegiance with civic virtue, thereby removing once again, removing in responsibility of the citizens. So my party and civic virtue are synonymous. Is, is, is that also a challenge for us? I think so. When
1: your party is the party of the good and the opposing party is the party of evil, then you foreclose the possibility of deliberation. It is devoid of civic virtue. So in that sense, ironically, uh, virtue signaling by party affiliation or otherwise is perhaps one of the biggest obstacles and enemies to civic virtue. We really have to get past that desire to to signal our virtues, to swear our allegiance, whatever we want to call it, and engage or embrace the messiness of public life.
0: You know, I just, over the weekend, I was in conversation with a person who saw the world somewhat differently than I did. And they were basically... Suggesting uh, on social media, you know, hang on to your hats. um, Some new information is coming out, and the election is going to be changed. And my response was, "Okay." This person was talking specifically about the the the, the Georgia presidential uh, race, and I said, "Well, all right. Do you believe that the Republican governor, who, who, in his own words, supported President Trump, and the Republican Secretary of State?" who supported President Trump by his own admission, are involved in this massive cover-up. And their response was, well, you're a globalist, so you wouldn't understand. And so I guess what I'm saying, the point there is that it really didn't matter what I said To at the point that I didn't fully agree with what she said. That was the end of the conversation how do we get beyond that so that there's someone who may see the world different from me or I can hear the validity of their truth? Because they're not, just, they're not just categorically wrong because they see the world differently from me.
1: Yeah, that's that's such a challenge. And it's been reinforced with our political leadership over the last four years where any criticism is automatically reduced to a particular leader. So these these labels are so anathema to authentic communication and productive political discourse. So when I'm talking with someone uh, with whom I disagree, I'll ask them, you know, put the la- let's put the labels aside. Don't look at me as a professor or as a member of a particular party or ideology, and I'll extend you the same courtesy. And, and let's just talk to each other as two citizens, two community members, two people um, interested in this particular issue. Because as soon as you label someone, then you, you reduce them and you reduce their idea. And it's no longer productive at that point. You're no longer communicating. You're just dismissing.
0: Once again, uh, sort of go- going going backwards to go forwards, if you will. I mean, what you're saying isn't that uh, when Madison talked was concerned about factions in Federalist Ten, isn't that wasn't that Madison's concern? This is even before political parties that we would get into these little factions and we could only hear the echoes of our factions in order to move forward. Yeah, to my
1: to my knowledge, that's that's absolutely correct.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Given the historical shelf life of republics, we know that republic, republics in and of themselves do not last long. I mean, we're doing quite well here in America for for being around as long as we have. The cur- certainly the founders were aware of the potential downside to a republic. And, and I wonder, when we, as we're talking about civic virtue and appreciation for it or a lack thereof, are you concerned that we might be reaching an end to this democratic republic as we currently know? And if so, what will we be going forward? Or what might we (laughs) be going forward? Well, typically,
1: governments don't fall overnight, with obvious exceptions, such as the French Revolution, where there was a clear and sudden transfer of power. But outside that age of revolution, historically, history typically moves more slowly. So with regard to the shelf life of our republic, the question implies... We're, we're still living under the same republic founded in, ni- in 1776. But in many ways, we are not. Uh, of course, we, we maintain certain mechanisms and symbols that provide a cohesive narrative. But we have changed in many ways, for better or worse, in different respects. For me, the Supreme Court declaring that money is speech and corporations are persons articulated a fundamental transfer of power that shook our core principles. But the greater public hardly noticed it or understood its implications. Um, if, however, the president came out and said, wealthy people can now vote twice, there would be outrage. But both decisions essentially arrive at the same conclusion, but only one fits within that narrative. So perhaps the only constant in our public is, is the name itself, and I don't see that changing. But to say that we're the same republic I think is, is misleading, you know, we, history for a long time was ruled by empires. And then there was a shift to the nation state. And now I think we're in an age of, of multilateral corporations that are really defining the landscape.
0: And, and I, I guess I'm wondering if we're not overt about what civic virtue means for us in this particular moment? To follow up on what you said in your previous answer, civic virtue in 1776 was not civic virtue in 1863, wasn't civic virtue in 1920 or 1964, and if and if we're not overt about what that means in these generation, don't we risk, A, putting it on the back burner and ultimately losing it?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I think virtue, uh, our notion of what is virtuous is going to evolve in light of our context, in light of our needs, in light of our perceived purpose. And to some extent, you know, that's that's okay, but I, I do think it's important, as you suggest, to pause and reflect every so often and ask, okay, what does it mean to be a good citizen? What is my responsibility? Outside of any particular issue, what are are my general responsibilities as a citizen? What does it mean to be a responsible citizen today? And and that goes back to our conversation earlier about navigating between the political and the philosophical. I think it's healthy to step back and, and reflect every once in a while. Well, otherwise... It, it becomes a matter of means and ends, and the ends continue to justify the means. But with civic virtue, remember, it's it's an intrinsic good. So it's about the means itself. It's not about the ends. It's not about the external good. It has to be worthwhile in and of itself.
0: Professor Marinelli, you, you talked about uh, the ends justifying the means. We're currently, in my view... In 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 a paradigm where, if my side does it, not only can I justify it, nuance it, and and support it, but if you do the exact same thing, I can find all the flaws in it. I mean, for example, in my view, the rationale to not give Merrick Garland a hearing for the Supreme Court—that rationale was the same, was almost the antithesis of sort of fast-tracking Judge Amy Coney Barrett, and the proponents of Judge Barrett were the opposition to Judge uh, Garland, and it seemed to be no problem with either side. No one saw the hypocrisy in that. And that's the kind of thing I think that, in my view, undermines our civic virtue at some point. I think that's
1: a great point. And what's going on with the Supreme Court right now demonstrates how ends do not justify the means. So neither party is being genuine with what they're doing. It's it's about power politics. And each side wants to put their people on the Supreme Court. But that's going to come at a cost to the public trust, and it's going to be really difficult to reestablish that because ultimately it cultivates a very cynical politics devoid of civic virtue
0: whose responsibility how i mean is uh to restore that that civic virtue if if we're electing people and those individuals on both sides are being rewarded. For their lack of civic virtue, if I'm not or we the people are not calling them on it and we only care about civic virtue when it's the other side in violation of it, in our view, then what is, is there any answer or are we just adrift on this sort of demagnetized moral compass?
1: It's a great question. It's a challenging question. First, I don't know if it's a matter of restoring civic virtue per se, as if we ever had it figured out. So I would want to resist the temptation to idealize any particular time period, but I do think it's still a worthwhile endeavor, and I think it's all of our responsibilities, and we have to demand more from our political parties, from our representatives, but the good news is that it's highly within our grasp. Simply starting a conversation with someone, listening to their opinion, creating community with one another. All of these small acts are vital to the cultivation of civic virtue and vital to the democratic process.
0: Professor Kevin Marinelli. University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Executive Director of the Program for Public Discourse. Thank you, sir, for uh, joining us today on, on The Public Morality. Much appreciated.
1: You're welcome, and thank you. This has been a pleasure.
0: The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public reality at their studios. The public reality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And in the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but in the same boat now. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.